I am John Pollock, along with Wei Ting, and welcome to Rewind a Dynamite, the post-Fighter Fight Part 2 edition. How are you, Wei? I'm doing well. Yeah. The post-Fighter Fest Part 2 edition. Okay. Mouthful. It was uh, quite a mouthful. I think that they could incorporate some French into some of their branding. I mean, they have. Jericho. Le Champion. I mean, you're right. A, a, a multicultural bilingual promotion. Bilingual promotion. Yeah, sure. The sex gods. I mean, what what is more um, uh, bilingual than that? Well, as we've established, it's it's not exactly correct grammatically, but we'll let. Well, it slide. N- now in AEW, it is very much uh, a singular person because the other one does not exist for the time being. That is true. Yes. I know that sometimes we detour off into uh, Toronto-related news, and a lot of times it's the cliche weather discussion, but I can't help myself tonight, Way Today was the weirdest day I can recall. So yeah. it was hot as F outside. Like, it is the last few days. This has been like Las Vegas heat weather. This is, the, this is just a, a ridiculous level of humidity. You go outside, it is like you are walking into a sauna. It has been brutally hot. Can can you back me up on this? It's been hot, yeah. Um, you know, throughout the summers in Toronto, like like Toronto is definitely a city of extremes. We get really cold winters and then really hot summers. And there are certainly like several days throughout the summer that 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 I would, you know, classify as almost unbear- unbearably hot. I mean, this was hot. You know, what? it's been hotter, but yeah, like what? We had temperatures in the 30s or up to 30, right? Degrees Celsius. Yep. Yeah. Like, like yeah, low mid, low to mid 30s uh, we, we've been hitting of late. So, I mean, we're not Las Vegas level, but it's, it, it's pretty gross out when you're walking around. So then we suddenly get hit with these uh, huge downpour today. And then uh, I'm working away in my basement and the lights go out. It's completely dark in here. Everything's dead and the power goes out. And this was rather amusing in a little bit uh, of a way because on Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, the hardest working man in the in the business, Andrew Thompson, does our news updates. And he messages me on Tuesday. His power was down Tuesday for the entire day. So he wasn't able to uh, to do a news update on Tuesday because he had no power the entire day. So And so people know Andrew does not live anywhere – in Canada, he lives, I believe, in Maryland. Yes, very far away from us. So today, when my power went out, I'm texting Andrew immediately. I'm like, "Dude, you will not believe this. My power is out." Now, my power was only out for a couple of minutes, uh, but my internet was like fried for like 20 minutes or so. So, oh no, yeah, 20 minutes. It was it. it was a long 20 minutes. And then Toronto is putting out like they're on a there's a tornado watch. In Toronto, so I'm thinking, my God, are we are we going to be okay to do the show tonight? Is a tornado going to hit? And then four o'clock or so, 
Sun's back out. It's scorching hot out again. And I went for a walk right before dynamite. And my God, it was like walking through a desert. It was so hot out. It was the weirdest uh, change of weather throughout a 12-hour period today. Yeah. I mean, some people, you know, when they move out of, let's say, like a New York or, or a Toronto and they go to like a California, sometimes you hear people say, you know what? I really miss seasons. <laughs> we got seasons uh, in Toronto, plenty of them all throughout even the span of like two or three hours. Um, I, lo- I lost power myself too, John, but I, mine was gone for like probably like two hours. So it's, it's another reminder of just how helpless we are as a species, how helpless we've become and how dependent we've become, not just on the internet, but of course, electricity. Like I've thought about this. It was like, man, the AC wasn't working and it felt like the end of the world, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, like, you know, the thing, the people that have survived the longest are the animals. Like they, they function perfectly fine. How helpless are we that we really can't even depend on, like we're so dependent on not just electricity, but, the, but at this point, this thing on our like LTE signals and 5G signals and God forbid, you know, we can't access our Twitter for like an hour, but it's a reminder of just how much our lives revolve around like these artificial things. Oh, and, and this period more so than ever, where a lot of us are, are stuck in our homes. I mean, imagine this whole uh, pandemic period if uh, if your internet – like, we're so spoiled in, in many ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So – other but, than But for we survived. Four I mean, minutes my, today. Of, of course, my main concern was like, oh, man, is my power going to come back before this these shows go on? And I really did think about, like, if, if I didn't have electricity, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have the internet, I wouldn't have cable, and I wouldn't be able to watch these shows. So, like, normally, if this occurs, I mean, I would just contact you to watch at your house. But I obviously, I wouldn't do that right now. So, I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking about how I would watch this show. Like, would I try to, like, you know, wing it on my remaining battery power on my cell phone using my LTE? Um, you know, you know, it would be the smartest thing? For TSN to do would be to broadcast Dynamite on TSN radio. Uh, just for us, just for the two people doing a podcast about I, it. I feel like I could make a request, and it like ten percent chance we could maybe pull that off. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, what else? What else is airing on TSN radio on a Wednesday night? It's not like they're co- doing live game coverage right now. I don't know what's on TSN radio at the at this hour on a Wednesday night. But from eight till ten, there's no TV access. the The whole city would be down from power. Right? That was when when we had that that huge power outage back in two thousand three. That was like one of the big stories was that for that whatever it was two three day period, radios was like that was your information of how you could find out about this when when the power was out. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, thankfully we didn't have to uh, get to that point. Uh, and we were able to do these shows. And that we will. Uh, we're going to get into Fighter Fest Part 2. And Braden Harrington and Davey Portman, they have got a new edition of Up Next covering week two of the Great American Bash. Yeah. I, th- I believe this time they're actually doing an American-themed uh, party. You know, last week was on Canada Day. They were dressing up and they had their own Great Canadian Bash. I believe this week... They were going all American, so um, I, late, I can only imagine. It's like a doing late. a it's like doing a Christmas show on 
like a week after Christmas. It's kind of like the holiday's over. So I, I'm talking oh, about like NXT in general. I mean, you're really stretching this to two weeks is, uh, I don't know, a little bit like staying a little bit after the party. Well, some people work during the weekend, you know, and they might not be able to celebrate until this day. I think we let it slide. Uh, potentially. Did you did you see uh did you see Paul Levesque's quote about um why why they did the Great American Bash? I did not. Please. This is uh, to SI.com. Obviously, there are counter programming decisions, but I can tell you exactly how this came about. Almost all of these storylines were headed where they are now. There was a gap, timing wise, between in your house and what will become the SummerSlam takeover, and you need a halfway point and a build. This is that halfway point. So it doesn't change our decision-making process. I don't counter book. I book what's right for NXT. <laughs> so wait, right. this, this has nothing to do with anything else. This is the midway point between two takeovers because the midway point between every takeover has a two-week blockbuster double title blow-off. What a coincidence. Wow. It's amazing. And it landed on July 1st and 8th. And... And they weren't able to get that announcement in until AEW had set up these these two very weeks. So that, that's amazing. I like how he does kind of decipher. He says, there are counter-programming decisions, but I don't counter-book. Like, what is what is the difference between counter-programming and counter-booking? Counter, yeah. Um, I don't know. That's one of those things you'll have to ask him uh, for a clearer definition about. It's... Uh, just, you know, what's the harm in, in admitting, hey, yeah, we're doing a two-night thing because they're doing a two-night thing. I'm really curious to see what they do next week, though, because, uh, you know, it turns out AEW didn't really just have a two-week thing going on. They actually have a three-week three thing going on, leading right into Fight for the Fallen on next Wednesday. Yeah, um, I haven't seen NXT. They are, I did see that they announced Io Shirai and Tegan Knox for next week for the women's title. So that's mm. that's one big match that they have next week. Okay. And the photo was accurate. What photo? Oh, uh, I haven't seen it yet. Well, anyway. Let's get into uh, just a couple of news items tonight before we get into uh, Dynamite. And Wei and I have both seen the uh, the Ricochet 365. Wei was uh, – he was so envious uh, when I mentioned I had seen this that he went out of his way to watch it. So after Dynamite, we'll, we'll give some quick thoughts on <laughs> – the year that was for Trevor Mann over the last year. Uh, but we start off um, with uh, more involving the speaking out subject. Uh, Matt Riddle put up a video today uh, addressing uh, the allegations that have been set forth by uh, Candy Cartwright, uh, Samantha Tavel uh, is her real name. And Matt Riddle acknowledging that the two of them had an affair and then he broke off the affair, telling his wife about it, and said he felt uh, he felt awful about it. Uh, but then cut off communication with her, and he claims that she continued to uh, message him and found his new number, and pretty much laid out that she's been constantly stalking him. And he adamantly denies any kind of sexual assault or sexual abuse that he has not done any of what's been alleged against him and that's kind of the crux of the video that he put up today mm -hmm. yeah it was a two and a half two pretty much like two minute 20 second video of, of just matt riddle plainly talking to the camera and um um i mean 
you know, it just continues further this kind of like he said, she said type of thing at this point. Um, I, it's it doesn't necessarily mean it didn't occur and her allegations don't necessarily mean that it did occur. And we are just kind of left in sort of this public stalemate. Um, we're really at this point, it's like up to somebody, you know, uh, reading it to determine for themselves who to believe. Um, and I do believe it's a case where we, we should really kind of like perhaps wait for another body to like, you know, do a further investigation if one does occur before making any sort of judgments. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what mu- much else to say about about that. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about these stories, but I mean, there are a lot of them. It's assessing two sides, and that's that's where we're left with. I, I don't know if we're going to get much beyond this, beyond one side of the story and a counter to it, and that and that's what we have here. Um, the terrace house uh, situation. Uh, so. On Wednesday, uh, Farah Akasi, who way you had mentioned about when you were running this story down on Friday, uh, she has translated the second part of this article uh, that kind of goes into the details surrounding Terrace House and the incident involving Hana Kimura and Kai Kobayashi. And this uh, this new article, uh, according to her translations, has uh, a number of new details Uh it includes uh, information about the, the contracts for the cast members, uh, what they are paid, as well as kind of how strict these contracts were that, you know, you, you break these contracts. The fines sound like they are, you know, range from five to six figures U.S. if you break these contracts and places a ton of control with the producers right down to kind of limiting your ability to leave the house until you – get the clearance from the producers. So it seems like it's a, a very restrictive agreement that you're entering into. Uh, it also, you bring- know, on, on top of all that, John, like it's, I think also should be stated how damaging it can be to somebody's career for leaving a contract like that, especially if you're a young person operating in like the Japanese entertainment scene. Yeah, it's uh, a great point. People entering Terrace House, I mean, many of them are models or people who are looking for, you know, a, a way to springboard their their, 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 you know, their lives into bigger careers for other things and to have sort of like that scarlet letter of somebody who does not honor a contract for, for, I guess, whichever, whatever reason would have been incredibly damaging. And that's all going to say, you know, just goes to t- tell you about the incredible amount of pressures that, you know, all the people that are on the show is, and Hannah Kamora especially felt, um, you know, in order to, uh, you know, stick with the contract beyond the, the, the monetary penalties. Yeah, and I mean, clearly it is that idea of using this show as either a springboard or just to go on for the exposure. Because when you see like what they're being paid versus the hours they must have been working per month, I mean, it's it, it's like a thousand dollars U.S. for a month. In Hannah's case, I mean, she was a fan of the show, and she felt like it would have been a great opportunity to introduce the world to professional wrestling. Is what she she's always said. What the character has always said uh, on the show. Uh, and, you know, I don't doubt that I, I do wonder if like, uh, you know, stardom perhaps or uh, had any hand in, um, well, obviously in allowing her to be on the show, but also like, I wonder if there's any, you know, um, hand from stardom to encourage her to be on the show. I, I, I haven't necessarily seen anything about that, but certainly like her, her motive to be on the show seemed to be to, you know, introduce professional wrestling to a wider audience. 
it also brought up a, a scandal involving the show in 2014 where some cast members went public with allegations of sexual harassment as well as bringing up like stage scenes on the show and this led to Fuji TV canceling the series and then later I guess once the, the heat died down that's when they began working with Netflix uh although it was the same director that was involved uh both in the prior iteration and the most recent one um they interviewed this director who was not named here at least in the translations um being asked about this and seemed to just uh, pass it to those questions should be asked of Fuji TV uh, they did speak with Fuji TV president uh, Ryonosuke Endo, who denied the allegations and uh, also said that they were investigating the claims and that cast members had been asked for their consent ahead of time, uh, I guess, when they were screening people. Now, uh, Kai Kobayashi was the lone cast member that did speak on the record in this article, and he mentioned you know, being in contact with, with Hanakamura May 15th. Uh, she died just uh, – a week later uh, after that conversation and said that the, the the scene involving them with the costume incident, it was staged. And then this other account, the unseen Japan Twitter account translated further comments made by uh, Kai Kobayashi in public to the Bunshun outlet and outlines that when they were filming the scene of the two of them on their first date together, one of the assistant directors told them that their date, like what they were doing on the date was not interesting and made a suggestion that he feel her up or something with Kobayashi adding that such requests like that were typical on this show. And I mean, just the more details that come out about this, it just comes across like it's just, ugh, like the details are just horrifying. Like when you see like what was encouraged here, uh, the treatment that these cast members were subjected to. And it seems that, you know, many of these cast members are, you know, to your point, way probably do not want to uh, publicly uh, speak against the network or any of these, you know, powerful figures in television, uh, with the exception of Kai Kobayashi, who is willing to do so. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was happy to see Kai, um, like, be one of the people who weren't afraid to speak out. I mean, I don't know how much. Uh, I don't know how much this this might affect his personal life. Um, it, it, you know, as far as like a career goes, but I I don't see the show coming back. First of all, and ho I don't know. I I I I personally hope that I guess he doesn't feel much of the brunt of the fallout contractually or anything like that. Because like, what contracts exist at this point? But I was happy to see like Kai be the one to speak up because I I was personally afraid that he was going to be the one to get the brunt of like, you know, um negativity from the audience and really the brunt of the blame from a lot of the audience for what happened to Hannah Kimura because he was the face of the he was the antagonist to her in that particular incident and I think the like the public admission that everything was at the very least exaggerated if not completely staged was um a revelation that I think you know as the weeks have have gone on a lot of us have like you know pretty much figured out but to actually get that clear admission from a cast member um Number one, it angers a lot of people, not just, you know, fans of Conic More, but, but fans, former fans of Terrace House, who I think a lot of people, you know, of course, like when you're watching reality TV, there's a great deal of suspension of disbelief, much like there is with professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in reality TV, I think a lot of people expect things to 
either be completely scripted or at least partially exaggerated. But I don't think it, the extent of which, you know, what's been revealed thus far, or at least alleged from both um, uh, Hanakamura's mother and even Kai here, uh, was was known. Certainly nothing to the extent of like, hey, feel this person up on your date because your date is not interesting enough. That shit is horrific, and it it completely deserves to be called out, and the people responsible should be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, this to me goes much 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 deeper than just um, you know, just it was horrifying what we were starting with, and as you're digging deeper, it's just uh, there's just worse details uh, coming out about all of this. Um, on a note regarding uh, Hanakamura, this weekend's uh, Ring of Honor episode is going to have the entire hour dedicated to Hanakamura, and I guess featuring various matches of hers um, that she did with Ring of Honor during uh, her time over there. Television um, ratings. Oh, sorry. We should also mention how, like, in that article that that was translated, um, it seemed like you know again um, Hanakamura's mother was calling out. Bushi Road for I think their it seems like their lack of cooperation in them in wanting to find the answers of the truth of what happened here. And it seemed like she was saying how a lot of people who made money off of Hana in the past were suddenly washing their hands away from the situation and not wanting to deal with it. So again, this seems to be part of her mission of why she's speaking out right now is to Number one, seek vengeance for whatever happened to her daughter. Really seek the truth of, for what happened to her daughter. But also to call out the people that, you know, were formerly attached to her that seemingly aren't doing anything right now. Yeah, it seems to be this um, almost a struggle between ones who are just hoping to sweep all of this under the rug and move on and others who see the all of the problems that led to this that want them addressed. And that seems to be that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's presently her mother and this, this cast member, Kai Kobayashi, that are the ones that are pretty much leading that charge to try and hold those accountable. Um, and probably going against some very powerful figures in Japanese television. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we go to uh, television numbers from this past week uh, for Raw and SmackDown. Raw on Monday uh, did – well, they did 1,687,000 viewers, which actually would be slightly below that because the third hour had a two-minute overrun, which would drag it down a little bit more. So with the exact total, it might end up equaling uh, the – modern all-time low which was set back on may 4th uh which was just a thousand viewers less which i mean with these television ratings it's basically a rounding error at this point so for all intents and purposes this was right on par with the lowest in modern uh history uh with that figure what was notable uh this week's show as opposed to that show on may 4th is that this show started off terrible this was the lowest first hour in the history of three-hour Raws, with uh, under 1.7 million people tuning in uh, for that first hour. So that tells you that this is not a pattern where there was the usual big audience in the first hour, and then you saw decreases as the show went on. I mean, it was low in the first hour, and actually it was the second hour that was the highest uh, viewed hour of the three, uh, and then falling down to 1,612,000 viewers in the third hour. And going into this show, I mean, up until just a few hours before Raw, uh, 
it was just being advertised around Asuka and Bailey. Um, so we will see uh, where this leads to Raw. SmackDown from last Friday finished with 1,777,000 viewers, which is their lowest number they've done to date on Fox uh, with a 0.4 in the uh, demo. Uh, this had the combination of going against uh, all of the cable news coverage Friday when Donald Trump did his speech in front of Mount Rushmore. So a lot of cable news programming was significantly up on Friday night. It was also 4th of July weekend, so that may have played a factor into things. So uh, that'll put some focus on SmackDown this week to see if uh, SmackDown just had a one-week blip falling to such a low figure and if there's a rebound this week. Uh, but yeah, Raw and SmackDown posting uh, significantly low viewership over the past week. I'm, I'm disappointed for Heath Slater because that thing at the beginning of Raw this week was the best thing on that show. Yeah, I'd be interested if uh, how that, that first quarter did. Um, and maybe maybe an argument that they should have held off that match until, you know, one of the crossover hours later in the show instead of uh, dispatching the poor guy in 24 seconds. Well, we'll see. We'll see if... I mean, what do you think? Like, if something like this happens, like, what changes can you see them making for next week? Um, well, I mean, it's already they've already taped next week's television, so it's not like they can react to this number. Um, nor, nor have we seen the company react to one week numbers or even um a slew of numbers. I mean, we saw the creative shakeup about a month ago with. Bruce Pritchard overseeing both shows, and the result was two weeks of, you know, by raw standards, strong numbers of, you know, 1.9 million viewers. Um, I, I don't see WWE being overly reactionary, and I think the argument could be made, number one, you probably shouldn't be overreactionary during this period. At the same time, what what are those reactions you can you can do? Like, we saw that... <laughs> Remember the uh, the invitation gimmick that they introduced and then as quickly as it was introduced was forgotten? Yes. It's like I, I don't even know what ideas they could come up with. Like they mm. the, the brand split, like having people switch shows is not even that novel a concept to me that would even generate much interest. Um, I, I don't even know what you have at your disposal that you can – like to me, hotshotting means nothing because, okay, you're going to get one week – uh, uh, of a big jump on something. To me, it's it, it's building a show around compelling characters, compelling matches, and overcoming a terrible three-hour format that you have to each week. So, uh, I mean, I look at SmackDown as a much easier show to, to book and make creative changes to versus Raw, which is a slave to this three-hour format. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so that that is the latest on that side. And then uh, before we move on here uh, in the UFC. So this seems to be by the day we're seeing more people uh, flagged uh, prior to their scheduled departures for Abu Dhabi. The latest um, American top team coach Mike Brown was flagged in Las Vegas. He has COVID-19 and he was scheduled to corner uh, Jorge Masvidal this weekend. So he will not be going. Also flagged was bantamweight Pedro Munoz, who is going to be fighting on next Wednesday's card against Frankie Edgar. Him and his coach Gabriel Oliveira were flagged in Vegas. So they join uh, Gilbert Burns, who was replaced by Masvidal, uh, his brother Herbert Burns, and his coach Greg Jones. And then on top of that, um, Paul Felder was set to go over to Abu Dhabi, and he was going to be broadcasting on all four 
of the shows on Fight Island, but he was on a plane next to Dean Thomas, who apparently has the virus. And while Felder has tested negative, they're quarantining him as a precaution. So he will not do the first two cards and we'll see his management is hoping that he can pass and he'll get over there to do the last two cards. But this Saturday, it's going to be a two man booth with uh, John Anik and Michael Bisping instead of the usual uh, three man booth. I mean, it's almost like it's a really risky thing to try to fly these people all around around the world to have them fight. Man, crazy. Um, You know, they, again, they are, they should be applauded for, I think, taking as many steps as they are to ensure that, um, if they are going to hold these fights, that they're going to be as safe as possible. Um, it's just alarming, like how many people are testing positive just in, in that brief story alone. Yeah. I mean, and there's, you know, several of those fighters, uh, that we mentioned are based out of Florida and it almost makes you wonder like if this, if this continues, you know, maybe you don't do this with every single fighter that is set to go to one of these host cities or at least the Las Vegas ones, but Maybe have them get tested before leaving Florida so that they're not, they're not traveling to Las Vegas to find out they have COVID um, mm-hmm. because not everyone's driving to Vegas. Some are flying to Vegas, you know, from Florida to Vegas. That's a pretty long trip. Um, so that might be the next step to take is before they even leave the state, get tested um, to, to prevent that travel from happening. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the uh, the human experiments that are UFC fighters and staff uh, continue. Uh, with this card uh, on Saturday night. And Phil Chertok and I will have a preview show of uh, UFC 251, and I'm sure we'll be talking about all of the uh, the measures in place. That show will be coming out on Thursday, as will a new edition of the British Wrestling Experience with Martin, Jamesy, and Benno. Friday night, Way and I will be live at 10.15 p.m. Eastern for all patrons with Rewind to SmackDown. And then we have two post shows this weekend. Saturday night, uh, you can tune in at 10 o'clock Eastern on our YouTube channel as Phil and Eric Marcotte will be uh, doing a watch along for the pay-per-view portion of UFC 251. And then after the main card, uh, I'll be hopping on with Phil for our post show. And then Sunday night, it's a New Japan Dominion post show with myself, Way, and Mike Murray. Uh, that will be a patron-only show as well going through the cards in Osaka. And a note on the UFC 251 post show, uh, like last month, this one will also be streamed live on the YouTube channel, post, uh, youtube.com slash post wrestling, uh, as well as the watch along with Eric Marcotte and Phil Chertok. They'll be live at YouTube at 10 p.m. Eastern Saturday to host the watch along party and also join the Discord channel, of course, where you can chat with uh, everybody and also you'll be able to use it to call in to the live show with John and Phil afterwards. So That's right. We're taking calls. First time ever we've taken calls on the UFC post show. So Yes, and uh Discord calls. So not through the Skype chat. I mean, uh I think we're, you know, Phil's going to be experimenting. He's the lord of the Discord, the king of the Discord himself, Phil Chertok, and he he will be manning that and if you are on the Discord, it's a great way to interact with phone calls. Uh, So lots to look forward to uh, postwrestling.com. And if you want to join the cafe with two shows coming up over the next few days, postwrestlingcafe.com, including, I think, a a critically acclaimed edition of Rewind Away. Who are the critics that are acclaiming it? Uh, I'm just assuming all the critics out there. 
I, I got good feedback to the show. I think I think we turned that one into a, a nice gem with, with no shortage of help from Jay Hunter. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would definitely consider uh, Jay the integral MVP of that particular review. He was fantastic on it, but we, John and I, definitely tried our best, you know, to navigate. Um, what is the name of that place? Curtis Falls. Curtis Falls. Um, what? Wichita. Um, Whatever. Montana. Montana. Yeah. Um. It's super strange. I don't. I don't. I don't even know how to describe it. But it features Brett the Hitman Hart, and um, yeah, we did our best. We did our best to break down the world that is uh, Luther Root and Way's favorite character, Newt Call. Oh, yes, great name. All right, into Fighter Fest we go. But before we go into Fighter Fest, I know what everyone was thinking. Man, what if I got? My ear all cut up and had blood on my favorite shirt. I wish I could get a new shirt. And I happen to be a member of the Post Wrestling Cafe, meaning I'm in a draw every week to win a blood-free t-shirt from store.postwrestling.com. Yeah, I, I think I'm, pr- I'm pretty comfortable in uh, guaranteeing that all the shirts will be blood-free. 99% sure. Yeah. Well, way. You have uh, you have assembled all of the names, so cafe members, just sit back, uh, cross your fingers, and let's find out who is the big winner this week. No, you do not have to find the unique hashtag. You are going to win just by being a member of the Post Wrestling Cafe, and that winner is... Congratulations to... Michael Pierre Charles. From Laval, Quebec. Michael Pierre Charles. Charles. Yes. Oh, sounds like a... Maybe it's a alias for George, the saint. Pierre Charles? Um, could be. Could be. Congratulations. Uh, John? No. Michael. Mike? Michael. Yeah. Always Congratulations. Tough the, always tough with the three names. Yeah, uh, yeah, Michael, Pierre, and Charles. Maybe it's a th- maybe it's three people. But, it could uh, be. They're all only getting one shirt. Yeah, you're only getting one shirt, uh, Michael, Pierre, or Charles. But congratulations, you win a shirt of your choice from store.postwrestling.com. All right, congratulations. And now it is time for Fighter Fest Part Two, taped last week at Daly's Place in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, thanks to our uh, my constant updates that I got through our unofficial Rewind to Dynamite correspondent, Braden Harrington, tonight. Uh, I can contrast what was going head-to-head with what matches uh, on this show, so we'll try and uh, keep people uh, updated. Uh, Starting off the show, we had the AEW tag title match with Kenny Omega and Hangman Page against Private Party, uh, while NXT kicked things off with the street fight involving Mia Yim and Candice LeRae. Uh, What did you think about the decision to start off with the tag title match, and did you have a good sense of what they would uh, put in the main event position on this show? Uh, You know, I I definitely felt like without the Cage and Moxley match, I think the next most buzzed about match was going to be Orange Cassidy versus um, uh, Chris Jericho. So I, I... I, I had a pretty good sense they were going to do that. I was pleasantly surprised to see that they were doing Page and Omega versus Private Party off the top. I felt like last week, you know, to start off with a Page Omega match would have been your best bet at like trying to obtain viewers and also really start the show off with a really hot uh, pace. 
they opted to instead save them for the main event, which I understood as well, but I definitely like them more in the opening position on this show. I mean, there are higher caliber opponents for Page and Omega, and I unfortunately don't really consider either Best Friends nor Private Party to be, you know, that sort of opponent. Um, And so I think that doesn't mean it's not a, you know, match not worth watching. Conversely, I think it's a perfect match to put in your opening match. Really fast pace, star powers there. um, And I really enjoyed it in this position. Yeah. um, You know, Private Party, at times they can be, very hit and miss. I think everyone knows like the limitations of private party is just that their, their biggest need is experience. Like that's what they need. They would be ideal in uh, a system like a WWE under normal circumstances where they're working house shows all the time. Um, but they're not. So I, I think that this was uh, a big match for them. And, you know, starting things off, uh, Jim Ross was really trying to put over private party, bringing up their win over the Young Bucks in the tag ter- tournament last last year. And uh, Mark Quinn is able to counter a Kotaro crusher. And then private party hits the silly string onto Kenny Omega. Page then takes Quinn and power bombs him into the crowd over the barricade. Cassidy then drop kicks Page, sending him into the crowd, followed by a springboard swanton using the middle rope and landing on Page and others on the floor. Uh, then we have Omega in there with Cassidy, and Tony Schiavone is noting that Private Party are borrowing a lot of the maneuvers made famous by the Hardys. Um, Private Party tried this uh, standing Spanish fly onto Omega. Um, that was, you know, pretty sloppy, I thought, just in terms of what they were going with. Uh, Page then goes after both of them, power bombs Cassidy onto Quinn, and then Private Party takes over the match here. Omega's down on the floor and he, after he's hit with a moonsault, and Mark Quinn can't hit the 450 onto Page. Cassidy then prevents a buckshot lariat, hits the spinning Uranagi, sending Page onto the ramp, and then Quinn hits the shooting star press. Omega dives in for the save, and at this point down the stretch, this thing is really clicking. The gin and juice gets stopped when Omega hits the V-trigger on Cassidy. Page then power bombs Quinn off the turnbuckle, and they finish Isaiah Cassidy with the last call in 10 minutes and 34 seconds. I thought that it, it, kind of the pre, pre-commercial break, they were sort of just getting their timing together. And man, down the stretch, this turned into a hell of a tag match. I thought uh, one of Private Party's uh, better outings, and I think a large part of that is on the opponents they had, and specifically Hangman Page. I think this guy has become just an excellent, excellent performer. And he was when they started, but he has slowly had one of the biggest uh, improvements to me just year over year and has become just a phenomenal performer where he is um, by no means uh, in Kenny Omega's shadow or anything in this tag team. Uh, I just thought this turned into a great tag match. I totally agree about Paige. I mean, you know, I think he's always been a really strong in-ring performer, but now he's got the combination of that. I mean, he's even an, an even better in-ring performer at this point. But, you know, it's not just that, but he also has figured out the character um, to such a great degree to the point where I would definitely make the argument that he is the most popular member of the elite right now. Maybe not so much in terms of, like, you know, uh, accomplishments and stature, but as far as, you know, the one with the most buzz attached to him, I think it's definitely Hangman Page. So, um, a really, really strong opening match, you know, Paige and Omega are just so versatile. They really mesh, mesh well with almost like all the teams, including in this case, a bit more of a spotty cruiserweight style type of match from private party, 
who, you know, as we've talked about, um, are fantastic in this role. There's still definitely a lot of room for them to develop before they get that kind of like top dog role in this tag division. But for now, these types of like long, spectacular opening matches against these more popular teams are a great way to showcase what they can do. Yeah, I I think Private Party just they just need more more time, and Mark Quinn needs to ditch the coattails. Uh, you think that's holding him back? I mean, it's, it makes him stand out, and I think it looks great in a shooting star press. Um, I don't know. That, that doesn't doesn't work with me. Um, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe that's just the one missing ingredient. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we went next to Joey Janela and Lance Archer. And Archer came out attacking Sonny Kiss uh, with Jake Roberts by his side. And we just get into the match immediately. They're brawling on the floor. He, he throws Sonny Kiss at Joey Janela to start the match, which is such an awesome start. Like, man, like he's using the man's tag team partner as a weapon. Yeah, they uh, they just got right into this. Uh Janela brought out a table and a chair and went to use the chair and referee Paul Turner stopped him. And this allowed Archer to shove him down and hit a pounce. And they do a close up of Janela with the eyes rolling back. And Janela was like uh, in this match, just getting destroyed by Lance Archer, but was like so entertaining Mm -hmm. in the role as well. And got his spots too of a big offense. This was not like a squash, but it was, uh, kind of designed to be that with Janela just taking all this ungodly punishment from Lance Archer. Jake has his bag in the corner and they're teasing like what's in it, but that really didn't come into play here. They went through a commercial and then Archer nails Sonny Kiss during the break and tosses Janela over the guardrail. Kiss then later serves as a distraction, allowing Janela and Archer to trade slaps, and Janela fires up with a rolling elbow. The tilt-a-whirl gets caught, and Archer teases the blackout, and Janela counters it, lands a big knee strike, and then it's Jake getting into Paul Turner's face, and Janela hits a uh, senton off the top. Kiss then comes in with a 450 splash, leading to Janela's big nearfall of the match, and then Archer takes Janela onto the edge of the apron, and... Earlier in the match, we had mentioned the table had been set up and Archer hits a blackout off the apron through the table on the floor and then smashes Janela's head into the floor, tosses him into the ring and pins him in 10 minutes, uh, five seconds of TV time, which included the commercial break. Um, This greatly overachieved what I expected this to be. And I thought this was uh, a really strong match from these two. I thought it was so much fun, you know, heading into this pay-per-view. Yeah, I would, I would say that this wasn't really too much on my radar. I just thought it was like, okay, it's another match that you'd probably see on dynamite. Didn't really feel like it was all that special, but in execution, I felt it was the perfect type of match for Joey Janela. He played just a fantastic underdog here. I mean, throughout much of his initial run in AEW, he's it's, it's, it's been, I would say maybe, you know, a little bit confused. I don't even want to say confusing, but more so just like maybe a bad fit with him being so undersized, yet kind of playing such like a such a badass in character. He he makes it work for him, but I think that really comes out when he go has to go up against a larger person in Lance Archer, who really brought out I think the best best elements of Joey Janela here. These two I thought were great mixes as characters. When I would say both kind of like are really these like outrageous comic book archetypes. You have like Lance Archer, who essentially like plays the Hulk, 
like comes out here destroying everything in his way uh destroys you know like in the past young boys in this case it's it's joey janela's tag team partner and he's just he's nuts and he's fantastic at it and joey janela is like you know in contrast it's like i would i would say somebody like almost like a deadpool type who's very funny very likable um and the more punishment he takes the more you almost like the guy because he's so good at like even when he's getting beaten up it just makes him that much more endearing and when he does his comebacks it's it's fantastic so i thought this was like a great showcase for both men but in particular joey janela yeah, I mean, he had the match with Moxley, which was probably his most high profile he's had in AEW, but I thought for his TV matches, like, this was um, as good a performance as he's had. I-, I thought he was the standout in the match. Like, Archer goes over, he was certainly uh, who this match was designed to spotlight, but, I mean, Janela to me was, um, th- this was a great, great outing uh, for him, and this like, on paper, this doesn't jump out at you as anything special, but it was just too... Uh, styles that mesh so well together yeah a guy who yeah. loves to beat people up and a guy who could take a lot of damage yeah so i mean the first two matches were very strong we then throw to another unique video from darby allen who says he has not forgotten about brian cage even though we have probably forgotten that that is why he is uh he is out and he is on this gigantic uh riser and wh- where is he like a train like like you know like yeah a, something you use to fix lampposts and things like that and he proceeds to hit the craziest coffin drop ever where he jumps off this thing and had to have fallen like 40 50 feet into these foam squares um the like he was pit. yeah and that was that was the segment i don't know like what sort of like outdoor gymnastics like gym or skate park this dude was doing this in um but each week he despite that injury continues to find ways to risk his life um and at this point like it's really you know come to my awareness that he's essentially just doing jackass stunts but because it's black and white it somehow feels a bit more artistic (laughs) so i don't know it just it's the power of you know uh desaturation um he well, did i hope f- he's not out too long before he starts thinking about like the uh smuggling the toy car prank oh yeah um that might be when he saves for his social media where i believe today he also posted a video of him drinking hot sauce um in a minute that's kind of a wasn't that what they were pushing Cody was going to be doing on the hot ones? I I think Dar- maybe that's that's something for Darby Allen coming up someday. I don't care how much uh, foam squares this thing had. This would be scary as shit to do. Of course, yeah. Yeah, of course it would. Yeah, but that's why you wouldn't be a wrestler. Yeah, this was uh, this is like one of those, those Shane McMahon stunts, which I mean are... I mean, at the time, we're nuts. Uh, but different differences. Shane McMahon kind of saves those for like a pay per view. Um, this is just something he'd probably do on his own on a weekend. It's it's one like even if you don't have a particular fear of heights, it's it's the going backwards that would just be uh, man. You, you got to be a different breed of cat, I think, to be able to execute a stunt like that. I think he would qualify as a, as a different species. Potentially. 
Tony Schiavone brought out Taz and Brian Cage, and Taz has a mysterious black bag and says this is going to be an iconic moment. Moxley was supposed to defend the title tonight, and Cage is going to be crowned the new champion next week, and he has something here he created decades ago. It it comprises his full body of work, and his blood and sweat went into this, and he reveals the FTW World Championship that he proceeds to hand to Brian Cage, making him the FTW champion. And Taz says, this is real renegade shit. And if you didn't catch that, he repeated renegade shit. Um, I thought that they should have had a mirror to hold this title up because that's what I was thinking during this segment. If you put the letters backwards. What? The fuck was this? Exactly. Okay. Uh, FTW backwards. Oh, I see. Got it. Uh, what was this? Well, this was it. I, I, I'm totally like in disagreement with you, John. I thought this was fantastic. Like this was him bringing back an a core element of his ECW character, which he has continued to do uh, reveal. Like, you know, this is ECW Taz. This is what ECW Taz would be like in 2020 if he had a new protege. And he continues to reveal older elements of his past. And here he brought out the FTW championship. Um, I don't know if this was like originally the idea before the match's cancellation, but whether it was or it wasn't, I thought it fit so well with the situation because the original FTW title was introduced when Shane Douglas, for I forget, for whatever reason, was unable to defend against Taz. And so Taz decided to make his own championship. And Taz's promo last week was complaining about how Moxley, even though we know he has very legitimate reasons, in Taz's heel logic mind, Moxley is duck and cage with bullshit reasons and thus bringing out a championship to represent that, not just represent, you know, that replay that scenario, but to represent him and what FTW Taz used to stand for. So I thought it was a really great little blast from the past. If we're really grading like the legends thus far in AEW between Arn, Tully, Jake, I think Taz already is my favorite. Like he's, he really feels like every bit of that same Taz from ECW whereas I feel like with guys like Jake and Arn we're still they're still kind of building trying to like you know get back to to the people that they were Taz is like is every bit that person in terms of like aggression and and, and ferocity in his promos and, and I thought the the title was a great way to like further that this whole story I I didn't like it just because of the fact that I'm so tired of just Introducing just titles for no reason, which this one feels like to me. Well, this is and more. Just, this is more like the million dollar belt. It's not a, a, an officially recognized title, but more so just like a way to taunt Moxley. So it's to me an excessive title, one that we don't need. And I think it's just more like I I have enjoyed Taz just being this like updated version of, of Taz, and this to me was just leaning too much on. Well, look, let's let's just. Uh, idolize ECW like this stuff from like 23 years ago that I'm just more than ready to like, we, we don't have to glorify every single thing that comes out of companies from 20 plus years ago at this point. And what 
this title's here for a week or it just sticks around and it's this title that's not even recognized. They're doing this in TNA right now. And I can't stand it there either, where it's just Moose carrying around this TNA title that we don't recognize. So I just felt this was, I don't know, to me, um, just unnecessary. I mean, we'll see how the story plays out and whether or not it'll last beyond next week. I would certainly hope so. If they're going through the trouble of doing all this, I'm also surprised that like WWE doesn't have some sort of claim to this IP, you know, considering it was like an ECW thing. But uh, obviously, I would hope that they've you know cleared whatever hurdles and and are are uh, I don't know uh, conf- confident that yeah, that's a that's a that's a fine. worthy point to bring up. Yeah, you know, it's not something that predated ECW. It was created in ECW, and by that logic, that would be intellectual property of uh, WWE and, and what they purchased in bankruptcy court. Who knows? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm sure like this was considered in Taz's mind or Tony Khan's mind that they're clear, but it, it's just an interesting case. Well, I'm I, sure after last week's promo, they have no incentive to dig deeper and find out <laughs> what exactly uh, they have the rights to and what they don't. Oh yeah, uh, but hey, I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked it a lot. I mean, I think I agree with you. There are sometimes you know winks to the past that often feel like they're pointless and gratuitous. I didn't think that that was the case here. I feel like there was like a great way to introduce this title through Moxley's absence from the match last week, and I'm kind of I think it just adds another layer to this like Brian Cage Taz you know team. Uh, then we had the eight man tag with Phoenix, Pentagon, the Butcher, and the Blade against the Young Bucks and FTR. Phoenix and Pentagon entered with Butcher and the Blade in their truck together, which looked like the best ride-along episode ever. Uh, and then FTR and the Bucks entered separately. And I can't remember, recall them plugging this before, but they did promote Being the Elite coming out every Monday at noon. Okay, yeah. They got the same treatment Jim Ross's book has gotten for the last few months. And <laughs> at this I'm pretty point, sh- it's like, I, I, I wonder how many people watching AEW don't know about being the elite? I mean, I, I would say that the, probably the vast majority do know about it, but you know, that's also like, that's basically asking how many new fans has AEW acquired recently that weren't already there. I'm pretty sure I heard this right, but it was somewhat in passing where I'm pretty sure to, Tony Schiavone referred to, uh, we've got three of the greatest teams of the era in this match, which I understand what he's isolating, but poor butcher and the blade. <laughs> it's like, oh, we got man. three of the best teams of this era. And then these guys <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, we had another zoom call mention that, uh, is up for grabs tonight, uh, with Jericho. If you can find the right, uh, uh, hashtags, unless you're in Canada, because we didn't get picture in picture tonight. No, we didn't. Fortunately. And then they cut to the crowd. This was very strange. We had Sean Spears and Tully Blanchard. And Tully had this weird material around his face. You notice this? You couldn't see his mouth or his nose. It was covered. Yeah. Um, very strange in this setting. Hmm. In Daly's place. Hmm. But good for Tully. Dax Harwood starts us off with Pentagon. And then Phoenix is tagged in. And they're working together. Uh, Butcher and the Blade then start double-teaming uh, Nick with a bunch of gut busters and a doctor bomb. Ross points out that Butcher and the Blade remind him of the Gimp in Pulp Fiction. So they all shared a laugh. Nick and Phoenix were in, the combination everyone wanted to see. And this resulted in the two locking hands and scaling to the top rope where Nick leaped up for a top rope Hurricane Rana that just looked incredible. Um, they went through the brick. Those two are just so incredible together. 
it's um it's amazing uh to just watch the stuff that these two uh can put together. Um we come back from break and Cash Wheeler tags Matt and they really play up that he was hesitant and they were playing this up that it was almost like the two teams were going to be putting up with the other but they weren't going to work with each other. It was like Matt would tag Nick Nick would tag Matt and same with FTR. And then we saw them start to work together and tag the other members of the team. So from there, um, Matt did the spot where he faked a super kick on Blade, setting up Dax Harwood to hit him with a DDT, which was a, a cool spot. And then they go to shake hands, but the butcher attacks them, preventing it. So then we get some combination uh, finishing maneuvers here where uh, Wheeler and Nick deliver the Goodnight Express onto Phoenix, and then Matt and Harwood deliver the Mindbreaker onto Blade. So we're getting them, uh, the the two rivals working together. And then they do the Superplex spot to Blade, followed by a splash by Wheeler. There's a Swanton by Nick, but Phoenix dives with this crossbody for the save. Phoenix then stops the Indy Taker with the rope walk, kicking Nick. And then, in one of the most uh, impressive-looking spots... Uh, in recent memory, we had a bunch of guys on the floor. Nick is standing on the second rope when Phoenix leaps up on the ropes and delivers a Canadian destroyer, sending Nick off the second rope to the floor. That was the most impressive thing you are going to see between either episode tonight. I, I mean, we haven't seen NXT yet, but I will guarantee you there was nothing approaching this in terms of uh, level of risk and execution that Phoenix and Nick hit here. Yeah, this was incredible. This was like I like I almost leapt out of my seat type of incredible. I did. I stayed fully seated, but um if I was prone to leaping out of my seat, I definitely would have. And that leads to Matt going for a super kick and he misses Pentagon, kicking Harwood, and then Phoenix and Pentagon introduce a new finisher, the LB driver, onto Matt Jackson, and Pentagon pins Matt. Uh sixteen minutes, twenty four seconds of TV time. Uh Another fantastic match on this show. Um, tons going on here and tons of story that they injected into this where I really enjoyed all the stuff with, with the Bucks and FTR. Um, Bladen Butcher got a lot of shine in this. And uh, yeah, Phoenix and Nick were uh, in particular um, fantastic in this match. This match was incredible. It was great. I would say for me, the best match across both Fighter Fests um, for me, better than anything on night one of Great American Bash as well. Again, I haven't seen night two, but like of those three programs, this was to me the best match. It was incredible. Just like this great, great posse cut showcasing just how incredible this current AEW tag team division is right now. It, it's a reminder how like how much of the division has been operating at half capacity for such a long time, you know, since the coronavirus began. For a long time, we didn't have the Bucks. For a long time, we didn't have the Lucha Brothers, and we didn't even have the, the full team of Page and Omega. Now, everybody is back, and they've even brought in the Revival. And to be able to see like the, the, the combination of everybody in one single setting here, just like, to me, just fully cements AEW as the place for tag team wrestling right now, amongst any place in professional wrestling anywhere in the world. It is just such a stacked division. And we got a glimpse of how well FTR stacks up here amongst what I would say might be an overabundance of like high flyers in, in the division right now, but because FTR are, are so counter to that style, they immediately stand out as does. I will say like, you know, for all, all the shade that Tony might've like thrown their way. 
I thought Butcher and the Blade looked really good here too. Butcher, especially, you know, being the lone big guy in a match like this, they use him really well here. And I mean, they're rightfully really underrated because I think that, you know, in terms of accomplishments and star power, they're very much at the bottom. But they look great here, and you know, hopefully in the year to come, they'll they'll get a bit more story and a bit more shine that way. Um, I, I thought Blade in particular, like a guy that you know, with, with this level of star power, was not going to stand out among mm. these eight. But guys, always in the right place. He was just, you know, I, I thought he r- really performed very well in, in this match in, in particular. And it, it's tough to stand out when you look at you know who's in this match. But um, this capped off like this first hour of Dynamite was one of the best hours of TV this year, I thought. I, I thought this first hour was just incredible. I agree with you. For me, this match in particular was, like, one of the best Dynamite matches of the year, which I think, you know, I really, of course, have to go back and, and think about everything. But, like, I will say, like, it's an incredible accomplishment to have this type of match right now, given all the handicaps that these shows have had. The crowd sounded really good here, and I don't know if they're miking this crowd differently. I don't know if they're using can noise. It will... sounds like it. It sounds louder than usual. On I noticed that too tonight. Well, I will I... say if they're using can noise, they're doing a much better job of it than WWE because we're not just getting the the hair dryer, you know, like CD <laughs> can can um crowd the hair dogs. dryer. Yeah, <laughs> which we I'm not the first to to coin that term, by the way. But it's like it sounds like it. Usually, it's like like that but this sounded like it was either mixed well or recorded well or whatever it it sounded really loud and it, it maybe they didn't do, do any sweetening it was just like you know how i don't know how they did it but it sounded great and the atmosphere totally felt like it was there as if there there were a lot of people in this in in, in, in attendance for this um great match great match yeah so yeah th- this was definitely my my match of the the show ftr and the bucks shook hands afterwards and we go outside, and Alex Marvez uh, informs Big Swole, who is trying to get in um, halfway into the show, uh, and she's been served with a suspension. And she asks him, this was awesome, have you ever heard of a fax machine? And I was waiting for Marvez to say no. <laughs> or snail mail? I drove three and a half hours to get here, and now they've announced she's suspended. I thought Big Swole was hilarious here. She's right to be pissed. Now, in fairness, it might have said earlier today, uh, but it was dark outside, was it not? So she was showing up late, I think. To drive three and a half hours to only catch the last half of the show. Um, well, I mean, what, was... what, what an hour to have missed as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, Maybe it, was, it just got really dark that day. Nyla Rose versus Kenzie Page and Kylan King uh, was next. A two-on-one handicap match. And they were showing uh, Penelope Ford and Hikaru Shida watching from the crowd. And this was Nyla Rose annihilating these two for two and a half minutes. Uh, King uh, tags tags in immediately because Page wants no part of her. Uh, King gets on her back and tries for a choke. And then Page gets sent into King in the corner. And we just see Rose run through them. A spear to Page. King gets knocked down. There's a fallaway slam that sends Page onto King, and then she power bombs Page onto King for the double pin at two minutes twenty one seconds. Um, perfectly fun squash match by Rose, just destroying two people. 
entertaining squash. Uh, I think a great way to, again, remind the audience about Nyla Rose. They've done this a couple times now. And I, I feel like Nyla Rose, unfortunately, has been somebody who's kind of been, who's kind of suffered from like inconsistent appearances. She'll appear like she'll like, you know, maybe have a title challenge or a defense or something like that. And then she'll be gone for like a month and then she'll come back. But um, whenever they do bring her back, they might do one of these types of squash matches. And as long as these are entertaining and successful, then I'm always willing to reinvest into a Nyla Rose program. Um, this was to me definitely like a fun enough squash to put her back at that spotlight and setting up that announcement. Yeah. And I mean, they even brought it up during the match, but like Kylan King is very tall when you see her next to Nyla yeah. Rose. So you have mm-hmm. kind of like, it was a strange choice having her as, as one of the two here, but, it, um, but that's what made it especially impressive. She did, yeah, especially beat, when she like did the power spots with her. She didn't just beat two smaller opponents. She beat two of the larger women probably we've had in the AEW division. So, you know, you, you see her do this to these two and then you see her. eye, like, you know, like look at Hikaru Shida and as a viewer, even though you've seen Sheeta beat her, you're thinking to yourself, oh man, Sheeta doesn't stand a chance against her. Nyla then said that actions speak louder than words, and she's hired a manager, but is not ready to say who it is yet, and notes that Cody and Brian Cage have managers, and now they're both champions. So Nyla Rose is officially recognizing Brian Cage as an official champion. That was a little, yeah, um, easy, I would say. But uh, maybe she needs to find like Ted DiBiase or something, somebody who's you know got their own belt at home. Would you like to see this one of the already established managers, or do you think AEW is going to introduce yet another um, voice? It's got to be a different one, right? <sighs> That's a lot of managers in this company. Well, who who could it be? Um, I think it'll be Vicky. That could work, and that would be someone that they could potentially use. Yeah, that's that's possible. Yeah. Possibly, possibly. I mean, Vicky kind of leans more towards the com- comedy end of things and is that what you want for Nyla? I don't know, but yeah, it might be interesting. Then we go to Colt Cabana's trainer's room or in the trainer's room with Colt Cabana and he was thrown into the railing last week and we see him uh this man looks like he was in a car accident where he went off a bridge and landed on a rock. Uh he was all bruised up here, and the trainer says, yeah, we're going to let him wrestle. And Brody Lee says, these types of accidents won't happen again if you join us, and tells Cabana, get ready for the match. Yeah, this bruise was something else, man. This was like, it looked like, you know, like like a black hole on the side of his body. It looked like a galaxy. Yeah, I mean, it was... uh <laughs> whole different uh species living in his his uh the side of his ribs here yeah it looked really bad and and clearly i don't know like i don't think you could plan for a bruise like this but they made full use of it they they put this thing on national tv on like on camera with colt just pretty much like his pants halfway down showcasing this thing for like a good solid minute two two minutes here um yeah it worked you know like essentially this is mr brody bring him into action despite him being injured. And it kind of helped them tell a story. So we had Brody Lee, Stu Grayson and Colt Cabana against SCU. Have you seen the new SCU shirt that they've put out? They didn't have it on tonight's show. What a great, what a great idea. This is the worst year I've ever lived in. Fantastic. Man, 
They're going to. Who's going to make more money? SCU with that shirt or Nick Gage on Cameo? Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm giving the edge to Nick Gage. Like, if I had $20 to spare, I feel like I'm going to pay for a Nick Gage cameo. Is that how much it costs to get a message? No, I don't know. It's probably more. I'm hoping it's more. Let me see. Oh, God. Yeah, Nick Gage. Like, I've only, like, recently become aware of this. I don't know how I feel, honestly, about, like, people being on Cameo, especially, like, wrestlers that, um, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, "Eh, is this really what you want to do? But Nick Gage on Cameo is fucking perfect, especially when he's there trying to. <laughs> when when people ask him to send a message to their son or daughter learning to potty train, and Nick Gage himself relays a story of him, how difficult it was for him to potty train as a kid, and to <laughs> it's it's the greatest thing. And it's twenty five dollars, John. It is the same twenty five bucks, same price as one of these shirts. Damn. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, if there's if there's someone that can pivot to just exclusively giving out messages instead of needing to wrestle, it might be Nick Gage. I mean, he is. Uh, uh, I think he's going to really put put cameo under a spotlight. All right, yeah, I'm all for it. Uh, so our six man tag here: Cabana goes to speak to SCU, and Brody pulls him away. Uh, we've got all the Dark Order members out on the stage as well. Um, Sky goes for a body lock and Cabana is just screaming in pain and Lee sends him back out to wrestle and uh, Sky is kicked from the apron. All six get into the ring. We see Kazarian dive onto the Dark Order members. Uh, Someone who really got to stand out in this match was Stu Grayson. Uh, Mm. You know, the way the story was, it's that Colt is hurt. Um, Brody is just kind of like the guy in the corner directing the two. And it led to Grayson kind of being the one that was primarily focused on the most out of a dark order here. And this is not a guy that gets to showcase himself all that often. So I thought, you know, he really had his, um, his working boots on here. And I think it showed JR called attention to him too, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, it really is a, a match like this where you see the, incredible depth of talent that they have like yep. this far down in the roster where a guy like a Stu Grayson is not someone that's immediately going to come to mind, but there is a, a tremendous amount of depth uh, on this roster and just not enough time to focus on all these people. Like that's, that's the issue with AEW with a, a two hour format. Incredible how like all these names, I mean, you know, with the exception of, of, of some of them, but like a lot, so many of them were, they didn't even have to go to the WWE to get this talent. This was talent that was just there. Yeah. Um, Lee comes in with super kicks onto Daniels and Kazarian. Uh, Sky then drop kicks Lee to the floor. Daniels hits a big tope suicida. And then the BME onto Grayson. Um, That gets broken up by Cabana, who then apologizes to Daniels. And as Daniels is dealing with Cabana, that sets up Brody to hit the discus lariat and then instructs Stu Grayson to tag in Cabana, to tag in Cabana. So Cabana gets the winning cover uh, after the work of Brody at 1132. And Cabana is all smiles after this. And he is undefeated since working with Dark Order, but is not part of Dark Order yet. I guess not officially. Yeah. Yeah. I think in ring, like the match was was good. I think SCU are always solid, as you mentioned. Stu Grayson had a bit of a chance, more chance to shine here. But but kind of following what we had already seen in the night, I felt this was pretty average and forgettable in comparison. And but much of the the issue for me is I'm just not really into this cult story thus far. Like it takes me, 
Colt is basically like reduced to to being this like really fake feeling down and out character who has to act like he's aloof, so aloof that he doesn't realize, you know, these people are cheating around him in order to get him this victory. And um like on some on like a BTE, like where you have to really suspend your disbelief and you know it's slapstick, something like that might work. But in the body of something like an AEW Dynamite, I, I it it just isn't really working for me. Next week for Fight for the Fallen, they announced the following. We've got the previously announced John Moxley, Brian Cage. Is this a double title match now? Maybe that was their whole reasoning. Let's do a spoof on NXT with a double title match next week. Oh, okay. I mean, I wouldn't see why not. If he is truly the the champion, he should put the FTW belt on the line. We're also going to get Cody's Open Challenge, which they have since announced will be Cody versus Sonny Kiss for the TNT title next week. The Lucha Brothers against FTR. And Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks against the Jurassic Express. I think this is a really entertaining lineup next week. It's a really strong looking card. Now, I actually feel like this is a card on paper that looks as strong, if not even stronger, than any of the Fighter Fest nights because you have like everything on one show rather than spread out between two. That Omega Bucks match with Jurassic Express is going to be great. Uh, just from what you got to see tonight, FTR and Lucha Brothers is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Cody and Sonny Kiss is going to be uh, interesting to to see that match. Like that's giving Sonny Kiss like a real platform to to, to work on the show because it's it's not been um, we haven't seen too many matches from Sonny Kiss. Um, and then Moxley and Cage, like that's a pretty strong lineup. And to me, that's one thing AEW has is that. They can mix and match, and it's all these interesting pairings. That is something you, I can say NXT, you get some of that, but not at Raw and SmackDown, where I don't know how many pairings that you could just come up with that are instantly going to draw interest just because it's such a unique pairing. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think so much of it is because like the wrestling is strong, stronger on AEW, and you know, like, if a good wrestler is a good wrestler and they're able to have good matches, like, you know, in any scenario, well, then the promise of putting this good wrestler against the good, this good wrestler automatically creates interest. Whereas like on something like Raw or SmackDown, you could everybody could be good, but because either the booking might be bad or the, 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 the time they might not have for, for, for a TV show or, you know, style constrictions, it's sometimes more difficult to, to get interested. Um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm honestly surprised that they haven't really burnt out a lot of matches, you know, a year and a half into this whole, well, I guess technically what we're less than a year in of the dynamite era, but I, I still feel like a lot of it's fresh. And I think much of that comes to like how good they've been in holding back. Like in, in, in particular, I, I think putting something, somebody like a Kenny Omega and Hamma page together to put them into the tech team division is a great way of prolong their careers really and making sure that they are stay they stay fresh you're by putting the belts on them you're you know allowing the bucks to take a break you're allowing you know your 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 prime tag teams to take a break at the same time you're like making fresh matchups all the time by putting anybody against omega page and you're also saving omega and page from their inevitable singles runs whenever they they have them so they really haven't burnt through too many big matches yet then we go, uh, Britt Baker and Rebel have been next to the commentary team throughout the night, passing notes to Tony. And 
a woman with a mask approaches them and it's Big Swole who says it's trash day and proceeds to throw the trash at Britt Baker. I think she just took the suspension notice and threw it at her and Baker sold it like her nose was broken. Feels kind of like the opposite of all the viral videos I've been seeing of people trying to pick fights with people who are wearing masks. This is yeah, the opposite. You're right. This was the opposite. I didn't think one of uh, Baker's better segments. Oh, they can't all be winners. Um, so then we go to our main event, and this is going head-to-head with Adam Cole and Keith Lee, which apparently did not have commercial interruptions and started uh, a couple minutes before AEW's main event. Um, so we have the best friends out with Cassidy, and he takes off the blood-stained shirt and removes his glasses before sending the best friends to the back. Uh, Shivani is plugging that the next picture in picture will have the hashtag to which Excalibur adds, Tony, that's if this match lasts that long. Uh-huh. Then Jericho makes his entrance and Santana and Ortiz are with him carrying jugs of orange juice. Yep. Yes. So the match begins and early on Jericho gets the walls on him inside the ring and Cassidy gets to the ropes and then is hit with the mad ball by Ortiz. And this prompts Jericho to go after the back. Uh, Cassidy eventually flips out of the corner and he's quicker than Jericho going for several covers until he's hit with a baseball slide dropkick and he just gets flown into the guardrail. We go through the commercial. Jericho is working the abdominal stretch. He eventually shoulder blocks him off the apron into the guardrail. Cassidy is just flying all over the place for this guy. Ortiz and Santana are getting into Cassidy's face, leading Jim Ross to encourage Aubrey Edwards to eject these two. Cassidy then comes back and he builds up by putting his hands in his pockets, does the weak kicks. And right as I'm kind of groaning at the spot, like this late in the match, he does it to fake out Jericho and hits him with a real super kick. And I just wrote here, shut up, Pollock. Just watch. <laughs> this was it, awesome. This was, was a great. It, it made total sense. And the, the announcers got it over really well. Totally. Totally. The perfect time to do a swerve like this. You know, like the whole time you're thinking, how are they going to work these very kind of like comedy slapsticky type of like gimmicky things into a, what what at this point is a serious main event. And I thought they found a perfect way to do it. And you know, it made sense in the heat of the battle that he would do something like this to fake out Jericho. Um, and I, I was really happy to see, like, this was sort of like an Orange Cassidy tailored for a serious match. Yeah, and I thought it worked really, really well. Um, Cassidy uh, went for several covers after a splash off the top. Um, then there's a corkscrew by Cassidy to the floor. Uh, he hit uh, Kenamaru's uh, deep impact DDT coming off the turnbuckle. Then he goes for the Superman punch, and it's blocked by Jericho, who applies the walls. Cassidy counters that for a cradle. Then Santana and Ortiz use the orange juice to attack Cassidy. There's orange juice all over the mat as the best friends run out, and they brawl with Santana and Ortiz. And I could see them maybe making that tag match uh, for next week, potentially, with, with that tease. Jericho then, with Edwards distracted, uses the bat uh, to attack Cassidy, hits the code breaker, but Cassidy kicks out. Had there been a crowd, this place would have been going insane for some of these kickouts by Cassidy. They they were sounding really loud, but I, I know what you mean. Like, you would have had a different level of volume 
like for like peaks and valleys, you know, for specific false finishes like this. But nonetheless, at home, I, w- I was going nuts. Jericho misses the lion salt. Then he's hit with a Michinoku driver, a stun dog millionaire and a swinging DDT. Cassidy cannot pin him. And then as Cassidy uh, sets up for he, he ducks a punch from Jericho and he sets up for the Superman punch and in diving at him goes right into the Judas effect and Jericho pins him. And I thought this was such a well laid out match. And I mean, you could only imagine what this would have been like in an arena setting, but I thought they overcame this in, in, in and that is not easy for an orange Cassidy match, but mm-hmm. I thought they got, they were able to put orange Cassidy in a main event setting. It totally worked with him as the underdog and put it, pr- putting Jericho to the limit. Um, it, th- this turned out really well. Yeah, I thought it was an excellent match. Uh, my second favorite match of the night, and if somebody somebody felt like this was their match of the night, I would have absolutely zero arguments about that. It was fantastic. When they announced this one, I, I think like everybody, we were really curious to see how Jericho would do in, uh, I would say, a really over-the-top kind of like mid-card comedy type of match against Orange Cassidy. And we got elements of that Orange Cassidy here, but instead, this just largely felt like a really great straight-up professional wrestling match between AEW's biggest star and what turned out to be a tremendous underdog wrestler in Orange Cassidy. Um, Like, he really, like, shelved much of the gimmick here and instead just showcased his, like, fantastic wrestling ability. And I thought it was a really good decision. It, number one, protects the credibility of the match and your main event, which I think is really important. And it also gave us a glimpse into, like, how Orange Cassidy can be altered someday to be used as a main event star in the future. Like, the comedy was there to get the fans to care about you, and the fans certainly care about him already. Now that they do, as a fan of his, I'm open and invested to seeing him just wrestle a straight-up wrestling match. And this boy wrestled the match of his life here. He was fantastic. Um, I'm sure he's incredibly grateful to, like, Chris Jericho for giving him that platform. And I'm really curious to know if, like, Jericho had any input in perhaps shaping, you know, some of that comedy into something that became more of a serious match here. Because the story was really well told. Um, and in ring, it was a fantastic match. Yeah, I thought they did a great job. Cassidy is a phenomenal talent, mm-hmm. and I think that most people have come around to that. Um, he's 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 excellent, and this was a great opponent for him to be with in a big spot. And it was, I'm sure, like was really motivating for these two. This was like a tough match on paper to make work, and they came out with with a great match laid out. I thought it worked very well. Um, and as well in, in this kind of, well, I'll say semi empty arena setting. Um, this was an awesome episode. I, I, I thought this fighter fest was, was a great show. I, I think that the main event delivered in a big way. That eight man was awesome. And that tag title match, I thought, especially down the stretch was tremendous as well. Like this, this was a great show. This was one of, this is one of my favorite episodes this year. Yeah, sometimes like for this episode, I almost forget that this was technically an edition of Dynamite because unlike last week, I definitely felt like tonight was worthy of a pay-per-view, at least like a B-level, if not even a major pay-per-view for Dynamite. I thought on paper, this wouldn't be as strong as night one, but I definitely thought it exceeded it top to bottom in terms of match quality. Great opener with Paige and Omega and Private Party that I, I personally, I mean, I enjoyed as much, if not even a bit more than the Best Friends match last week. Great David Goliath battle between Lance Torture and Joey Janela. Um, an eight-man tag that I I loved. Like, it was fantastic. And a really great main event as well. Um, really strong. Really strong show. 
Yeah, this is, I mean, this is as, yeah, as, as high a praise as I can give to, to a show. Like this was, there was really nothing bad on this show. I'm not crazy about all the, like the, the ECW nostalgia stuff. And that's a really tiny part of this show. And more people are going to agree with you than me. So, uh, there you go. A really, really solid episode of AEW tonight. So now we're going to go to the forum and maybe they're going to trash this show. Hmm. Let us see what the forum gave this. Uh, a 7.7. I would say that's on the low end. I, w- I would put this. This would be like nine territory for me. Nine plus. I would say so too for AEW. So let's yeah. let's see what they thought. I'm always curious when they disagree. Paul from New Jersey. Bringing back the FTW belt based on AEW's current situation was brilliant. Was I the only one under the impression that Nyla Rose was facing some sort of mystery opponent? Thought it was funny when Rose was giving examples of manager success stories. Tully and Spears were not mentioned. Solid night of wrestling. But I can't say this was any different than an episode of Dynamite. Okay. Uh, when Hangman and Omega eventually dropped the titles, who do you think it should be to? Um, I thought this was well above a typical episode of Dynamite. Um, but on Hangman and Omega, I mean, pick, pick your – I think FTR should definitely get – a lengthy run with the tag titles, but when the timing is right and I wouldn't be rushing to take the titles off page and Omega quite yet. Um, they're, they're really solid in that, in that champion's role. Um, but man, you could go through numerous teams in that division, um, and, and make arguments for at this point, if I had to pick a team to like, kind of lead the division after page and Omega are, are done with it, I, I would pick FTR. I think they would, you know, like you could tell they're slow burning this association with the Bucks right now just for FTR to someday quickly, like ev- eventually turn on them. And once they do turn on them, I think them with the belts and having but the Bucks chase them would seems to be like a story that might be the most uh, interesting. And, 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 you know, as far as like setting up like good baby face versus heel type of match. So that's kind of who I see. But then there could be other teams that, that you know, really catch fire because I would have never predicted Paige and Omega, you know, at the start of this entire thing to have the run that they had. So could be could be anybody. I love the beginning of this next one. Okay, we got to Andrew from Cape Breton who says, Fighter Fest, night two, Chicago Ridge. This show was really good tonight and I enjoyed it more than last week. That had to be the best Joey Janela match I've seen, even counting his match with John Moxley a year ago. It was good to see him in that setting of just a regular match. Well, as regular as it can be with a guy going through a table for the finish. All the matches were strong tonight, but the highlight for me was the eight-man tag match, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more from the tag team division in general. The main event was great, and the crowd helped a lot, but this is another example of a match that would have been amazing to see in front of a full crowd of people. The only low light was Taz giving Brian Cage the for-the-win belt, which is what FTW kind of means in this newer social media world. <laughs> it that works too. I mean, they swear they swear all the time on this show, but they've they've never dropped the uh, dropped a fuck on. For the win makes sense as well. Come on, he's he's uh, winning matches. It also reminded me of when Ted DiBiase gave the ringmaster the million dollar belt, and the gimmick didn't go too far. Great show overall, eight out of ten. So somebody who agrees with you, John, on that point. Okay, we're 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 even one for one against. It looks like everyone's commenting on the belt. Johnny from Saskatoon. I'm guessing with them bringing back the old ECW FTW belt that it's going to somehow be unified into AEW's title, maybe bring more defunct titles and turn the AEW belt into some world eater belt. 
But I digress. I think the Lucha Bros are the best first feud for FTR since both teams are both sides of the spectrum. But sometimes I feel like AEW tends to book themselves into a corner, sort of like introducing Lance Archer, but Cody winning in the finals. I don't think either of the teams should be on the losing side, but somebody's got to get the short stick. Good show overall, a solid 7.5. Much of it was that crazy destroyer to the outside. I think that's one of the things that might have separated AEW from, you know, traditional booking like you see in WWE is that they're not afraid to just throw these matches out there and to give you a winner and a loser. And just because somebody loses in a certain feud doesn't mean it's the end of their career. It just means that they're not the focused act at this particular time. Um, and I'm fully confident that they they can book around, you know, somebody losing. We got a Raymond from Sacramento who says, Nick Jackson, Ray Phoenix, these two had a literally dynamite match in a singles competition in the early days of Dynamite on TNT. And tonight they pulled out stuff I've never seen before. Just never ceases to amaze. Oh, and the rest of the guys in that eight man were good too. That was a spectacular tag match and I'm grateful that AEW respects tag team wrestling like they do. Into the main event, Orange Cassidy, Orange Cassidy versus Jericho was the first time we got overtime on TNT. I thought it was a good match. OC tried from the start, and I truly believe that the big win for Orange Cassidy against somebody like Jericho is better served for when crowds return. Hopefully, true crowds in some capacity can come back one day. 10 out of 10 show. Did this go past? I thought this ended right at 10 o'clock for me. Did it? Did this go past the hour? I was watching, actually, on an American feed because I couldn't get my Canadian feed on, on a Chromecast, and it was beyond 10 for me, but... Okay, but it could like I also noticed it was a bit slower than the Canadian feed, so maybe it nor I don't know, I'm not sure. Okay, that's interesting if it was. Um last one here is from Ryan. In addition to the show, check oh yeah, we forgot to talk about this, the Puppy Battle Royale. Uh this was airing on YouTube after the show. Oh, Helping shit. to pro- yeah, helping to promote a local Florida dog and cat rescue. But the show itself was better than the first week with the eight man being a highlight, but the low point was the FTW belt. So, man, what a, what a line in the sand here about the FTW belt. You're either pro or against. There's no, uh, there's no straddling the fence. I on, had no on this idea subject. this would be such a hot topic, hot button conversation, this FTW uh, that's belt. That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad we came out with uh, dissenting views on that one. Uh, I have not seen the puppy battle royale. I can't say I will. I feel Wade definitely will check this one out. I'm actually loading it up right now. This looks amazing. Holy shit. Is it shit. in Daly's place? Is it like where – what's like the setting? It's fully produced – I mean it's an, are- an arena of how, – How long is it? And how you got crowds. It's nine minutes. Okay. Um, and you have do- puppies representing each of the wrestlers. Um, oh, <laughs> And it's whoever, whichever one of these dogs leaves the the ring first. <laughs> oh man, this is awesome! I'm definitely. Oh, that sounds this. funny. They didn't really plug it all that much tonight. They spent more time last week oh, promoting it than goodness. I thought they did tonight. The dogs are so damn cute. Oh, uh, MJF's oh. got a dog. Uh, Orange Cassidy has one. Okay, this looks great. Wonderful. Okay, before we get out of here, Ricochet three sixty five. This aired. Uh, well, premiered over the weekend. Uh, on the WWE Network, and I think I think there was more interest in this than a typical WWE 365 or 24 or whatever number they came up with for a, a network special, because it's Ricochet, who has had quite the year, is what I will say, and this covered his call-up to the main roster in February 2019, up until that memorable two-and-a-half-minute loss to Brock Lesnar 
two and a half might be uh, actually generous. It might have even been shorter than that at uh, the Saudi Arabia show back in February. Um, just overall, did you feel that Ricochet came across in any kind of different light than you know he's kind of presented on TV? Like, did you sense like a significantly different uh, a personality behind this guy that is uh, not so showcased on television? I think that's a really interesting question, and and maybe just kind of goes to show you. How- I don't know what real discussion points can really come out of something like this where you don't really have any sort of breaking news. You don't necessarily have a year in this man's career that I would even say was all that significant other than him debuting. So what we're left with is like, you know, how did his personality come come across? And I would say he came across like a really big fan of WWE and somebody who in the end was just extremely grateful to be there. As he says, you know, while talking about his match against Brock Lesnar, he's already won being there. Being there, he's already won. He wasn't supposed to be here. Simply being in this, in this position means he's already won. And that tells me he is perfectly well-suited in the position he is currently on the roster because he's just a fan. He's just a fan who's lucky to be there. Let me ask you this. Okay, if you are a major fan of this guy, do you watch this? And let, let's say you're a huge fan of Ricochet that followed his career pre-WWE, pre-NXT, and you've been very frustrated with his handling. Do you come out of this having that, that, same, um, that same drive to see this guy handled better um, with this accounting of himself? Because I think that he – you know, so- he, comes, he comes across exactly as you said. Like he comes across like – so much of a fan and i would wonder how much of his own fans like do they want to see that in these performers that that they watch i felt like this documentary was very much like a a representation of i think his current wwe character and that's somebody who is starting off at the bottom level and again just great grateful to be there but anybody who's followed any of what this man's been capable of prior to the wwe i would even extend that to nxt if you saw this guy the way he was portrayed in his first appearance in nxt that first takeover he was on oh my god like yeah doing that flip to the floor like the man was a superstar uh, from the get-go destined to be a champion and I like I, I think back to the, to the time when he debuted uh, when it, when it was him between him Alistair Black Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa of those four I thought the surest thing was going to be Ricochet like to be a number one contender world championship like how could you how could you fuck that up like the guy just like he looks amazing he he like has incredible just. Like gracefulness in his high flying, he's able to do moves that, unlike anybody that this company has ever hired. Um, and yet, you know, what they saw was a guy who was lucky to be there. And it, it, it just unfortunately cemented that feeling to me while watching this. And it, no, it does not make me necessarily want to see him book better coming out of this. Well, and that's where I find it interesting because, granted, this is a WWE-produced special. He – you know, the the person, Trevor Mann, I would imagine that uh, cameras off, you would probably get a, a much more uh, unfiltered uh, look at how he's been handled. There's going to be a significant level, I think, of diplomacy and, you know, watching what you're going to say in this. This is a guy that is not here to ruffle feathers in any 
in any kind of way. But let's just extend that to, you know, he has been someone that, you know, throughout the last 10 years, wherever he has gone, whether it has been uh, to Dragon Gate, to countless independents, to Lucha Underground, to New Japan, that they have seen him as that star. He's been put in big positions and has delivered and has become an enormous star outside of WWE. He comes to WWE and obviously in NXT, they viewed him in that light. He gets to Raw and suddenly he's in a place where he is just seen as one of many, many different guys in this assembly line of talent. And if you are trying to stand out from the rest and this is your attitude towards things, are you knocking the door down to get that kind of attention and to demand that you be utilized in a certain way and and prove them wrong? Like this that that kind of attitude does not come out of this special. Uh, and maybe we're placing too much on a WWE Network special, but mm. this is someone that I think if you're a fan of this guy, you want to see this guy being an advocate for himself, having that confidence that is what separates stars from just members of the roster. And you watch this and come away from it saying, well, how can I be that upset when this is this guy's attitude and he is happy to just be one of many guys on the main roster? Totally. Completely. You know, I'm not asking for the man to cut a pipe bomb promo like, you know, CM Punk. I'm not asking him to be pissed that pissed off. But I think some ambition and some... Kevin Owens. Sure. Yeah. Kevin Owens, who has used these WWE specials where you can clearly read between the lines. He can be, you know, he's still in WWE speak, but you can understand when he showcases frustrations, what he is capable of, and th- there's a way to do it. And yes. I look at that and listen, I don't know this guy, but I mean, he comes out this. It's just like, for all I know, this this is what his attitude is and he's fine with this for me it wasn't even so much like you know what he uh what he said at the end here but like his interactions with sean michaels and and and, and i can't even bill goldberg you know bill goldberg like being starstruck in the back as he's shaking hands and saying like this is my dream and like those are stories we've heard plenty of times and i don't even necessarily fault those very genuine reactions if bill goldberg comes into frame and says that's the man and him saying wow that was so cool those are genuine reactions, and that's totally fine. Um, I do think like things like that need to be countered, though, with him being so determined that, yes, I am the fucking man. Bill Goldberg is right. I am that good. And now, right now, I should be in a position that's higher than Bill Goldberg's right now. Like That type of determination is, I think, the type of fire you want to cheer for in a baby face, in somebody who you could see potentially as a champion. And I definitely don't get that from watching this. And and that's something, you know, especially with this generation, because of previous generations, it wasn't like we we saw a huge number of guys that grew up as fans like that. That's more of, you know, the era of like your edge and Christians, for instance, but especially now where you have so many, you know, fans that were created during the 90s and the Attitude Era period that are now performers. And suddenly they're working with people that, you know, they grew up idolizing. And that's, you know, there's, it's always fine to be a fan. But when this is your industry that you're working in, there is that line to me of where you kind of have to take the fan hat off and you're approaching this as a business. And that's, that's always what this industry is going to be. I, I, I'm certainly like, you know, curious if there's any sort of direction given to him about 
like how much he could say as far as you know like him kind of getting into maybe the rougher parts of, of the booking of his year he he does kind of briefly get into it when he talks about how was it like after SummerSlam, you know things just kind of suddenly stopped um for him and he talks about how it made him like doubt himself whether or not like the company certainly like you know still saw that that thing within him he kind of got into it but that's the type of thing that i wanted to hear certainly more of it's mm. this was a tough one well anytime you do these 365s i think they could be a little bit difficult because it seems like they start off with an idea of who they think in a year's time will bloom into a, a, a superstar and clearly which is they, kind of interesting in and of itself that yeah. they started out on this and carried it through like that tells you where you know they at least penciled this in like okay we're gonna isolate someone's rise over the year they do not want to tell stories where they it, it's this is the end product like mm-hmm. ricochet it, it's not like this big happy ending at the end of it it's like it's actually like a real low point that they end on yeah and they chose ricochet thinking that he was going to blossom into that star i don't know if they done if they're doing one on alistair black but uh i mean even that story i guess i don't even know how you'd really end that one but for ricochet god the first half of the 365 is going to be in a dark room that's right. So, with all he my spent, highlights. He spent most of his year inside a dark room. There has uh, been this annoying podcast host who has taken <laughs> to taking my words. Oh, shit. They'll probably steal like our clips. Oh, probably goodness. fill out the first 20 minutes of 365. I need to see that uh, Alistair Black 365. Fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but like with Ricochet, it's like, you know, they, they banked on this guy to have a spectacular year and he didn't. And I think when you don't get that happy ending, that's the story. What went run with it? Yeah. 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 That's that's what, that was where my curiosity was like, do you run with it? Um, This, it was really like addressing it at the bare minimum. And then just the, you know, his, he literally wraps up this, this total squash with Brock Lesnar, which I mean, squash might be putting it nicely and just says, um, didn't go the way I thought it would and didn't really get to show what I'm capable of. But that was literally my first year here. I plan on being here a lot of years and being out there in front of millions of people. That's the dream. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do understand. It's like, even if he didn't receive that direction, it's like, he seems like such a nice guy, not wanting to ruffle any feathers that he probably like, you know, will put a positive spin on, on anything. I'll just say it didn't make for a very compelling documentary at all. I didn't feel like I was hearing this man's genuine voice. I mean, when 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 he's talking about like things like his mom's house burning down, absolutely, those are like really interesting things mm-hmm. about him. Yeah, um, like the, the all, Kobe story, like yeah. at the Rumble, like that day he's wearing a, a LeBron jersey, a LeBron Lakers jersey that day, and he kind of just then he gets the news that Kobe died that day, and it's like just a reflective moment that he has. I mean, they, they caught him in some like you know, uh, you know, just yeah. unique circumstances. See, I would have almost even preferred if this was just some, like a, like a, like a biography of Ricochet rather than him having to specifically focus on the year that he's had. Cause to be honest with you, like there really wasn't much to talk about this year. Like most, most of what this documentary was, was just highlights of like raw matches and then like, you know, SummerSlam matches and just, Honestly, to me, it was one of the lesser, less interesting WWE documentaries they produced in quite a while. Now, we we talk about kind of Ricochet's demeanor in this and coming off as this, this big fan. And 
is is part of it as well. Like we're looking at it like with a spotlight on on him. Is that also something where like the culture of WWE, like take this guy out of WWE. He's thriving wherever he goes. AEW is full of hardcore wrestling fran- wrestling fans that are like nerds about wrestling. And that's not perceived as a negative thing at all. And if Ricochet was there, I don't think anyone doubts that he would be thriving in that system. He would be thriving in New Japan's uh, junior heavyweight division. Uh, what is so specific about WWE where that is such a mark that it is uh, th- this negative mark on you to be, you know, such a super fan? Because I would absolutely look at WWE that that kind of um, that kind of label w- would hurt you in WWE's main system. I think it's t- perfectly fine to be a fan if the booking, like, d- d- you know, is has you actually winning matches. Like, if this guy was a good contender for championships and, like, you know, going toe-to-toe with Brock Lesnar, at least doing a little bit better than, than he has been, um, I think you can mark out all you want backstage. And, you know, it might not be the best way of pushing somebody, but I don't think he would be hurt by it. I think it's the combination of him being pretty low on the totem pole at this point and seeing him like fangirl fanboying over top of like you know with with an encounter with bill goldberg and like that that just really affirms and kind of establishes his role there like if if this was aew and he was booked to be in like losing against your 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 top guys and you know basically like in the mid card in a tag team scenario and then on road two or something he's like gushing over talking to Arn Anderson or something like that. I would have similar opinion. Yeah, I think I think fans could have the same. I just don't think it would be a detriment within AEW whereas in WWE, I would see like people there would mm-hmm. perceive it in a in a much more negative light than than I think other companies would would, would take to that. Um just in terms of how they would uh have an attitude towards someone that is a clear-cut, you know, big fan and shows it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, it's almost like they're, you know, they know that they can get this guy, whereas the people that they're, you know, th- that that they know they can't get, and, and people who have other options, they're not as grateful for. Okay, I'm gonna round this out with a few questions for you. Number one, when they showed the highlights of him doing the send off at Takeover, and then they transitioned to the next day at WrestleMania, true or false? You had absolutely no recollection of him being. On WrestleMania last year, totally forgot, totally don't remember that match at all, and I was probably watching it like standing there. Zero memory, dude. Zero memory that this guy was at WrestleMania last year in this four way match that I completely discarded. Was it a dark like a, a kickoff match? I was think it was on the main show, but do not hold me to that. Okay, it happened at w- during one of the five to six hours of the show taking place. Um, now I need to know. Honestly, okay. Well, Alistair Black and Ricochet versus the Usos versus the Bar versus the Bar. I mean that that was actually the seventh match on the show. Okay, seven of sixteen matches. <laughs> You're kidding. Seven of sixteen. Oh Jesus, that's ridiculous. And um, Usov and Nakamura were in that match too. Um, my favorite Ricochet quote was after winning the United States title from Samoa Joe at Stomping Grounds. The United States title is this for real? Oh my God. The United States yeah. title. Um, but the best supporting character on this was Kofi Kingston and yes. his pep talk. This oh. was hilarious. Like, it tells you, like, the natural com- comedy 
that the New Day have, and it's mm-hmm. typically that the three bring out of each other. This was mainly just Kofi, but he's giving uh, Ricochet a pep talk after losing the title, the U.S. title, to AJ Styles at SummerSlam and telling him that he's going to bounce back. And he's walking off out of the shot. You're going to bounce back. You're going to bounce back. And then there's a moment where he realizes that the actual motion of bouncing back is a ricochet and he pieces this together and it's amazing. I'm so glad this was caught on camera. I it mean, was I, so imagine, great. I mentioned things like this would, would take place anyway, all the time backstage, but um, I love that they kept it all in, in full. It would, it, it would be very interesting if they, they could have had like Kofi, uh, what his pep talk would have been after ricochet lost to Brock, uh, that they do have a, a common experience that they share. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what he could have said to make him feel better. Kofi's yeah. like, I'm, I'm still waiting to bounce back myself, but um, yeah. hey, there's always the tag division. <laughs> yeah, Kofi's kind of in the same spot. And we got the answer way. At the end of this, they did show B-roll of the empty arena and his matches with Cedric Alexander. So we did get empty arena highlights in a WWE video. Okay. Yes. Yes. So that's the Ricochet 365. I would not go go out of your way. How are they going to do 365s this year? Um, I guess it'll be, they could still do it. It's just, it requires a whole lot less travel. They're going to, they're going to get creative and they're going to pick three people and they're going to present three 65s where they're going to cover the first 65 days of the year when they were in front of crowds and they'll spread it over three people. Oh, interesting. There you go. That's how we'll do it. Um, Yeah. So I I would not recommend this one. It's like an hour that I I don't think you have to go out of your way to see unless you're kind of interested in seeing, um, you know, a guy in the WWE system trying to navigate the WWE system and in a place where Ricochet is. But it's... I don't even think you really get answers to that. Like, it. this to me felt like more superficial than mm-hmm. a lot of the other documentaries that they've done. Certainly there's no comp- comparison between this and something like, you know, the last ride. You don't really get any sort of level of introspection from Ricochet here. And it's it really, this played out like a highlight reel of a year with no highlights for the guy. So if you're curious about that for some reason, okay, have at it. Man, everyone thinks I should be getting a bigger push. I mean, the undertaker, his documentary is the last ride. I just finished the first ride. This is only the... I'm going to go on a lot of rides. That sounds like almost like a Sage Northcutt. He, like, Ricochet has some Sage Northcutt qualities in him. <laughs> oh, man. I wish Sage would, like, do pro wrestling at this point. Yeah, I mean, if he ever left one championship, I mean, go to the wrestling route. MMA is not going to be kind to you. Pro wrestling. I just miss, I just miss that personality. Oh, could you... Yeah. I, I'm just trying to picture, like, Sage doing, like... um. I don't know. Something with Nick Gage. It's always Nick Gage that it ends up. That is a dream match. Yeah, maybe. All right. Uh, That's going to bring an end to Rewind a Dynamite. Uh, Way, thank you as always. A great chat. Yes. Uh, We're going to be back uh, Thursday, as I mentioned. UFC 251 preview show, followed by the British Wrestling Experience on Thursday night. And then Way and I will reconvene Friday night, 10, 15 p.m. Eastern time for cafe members. Uh, We'll be live chatting about SmackDown, whatever news is going on. 48 hours from now, and then your phone calls, which we look forward to taking. Yeah, and then again, this weekend, of course, all patrons will have access to our Dominion Review. 
with Mike Murray. That'll be up on the Post Wrestling Cafe feed. Saturday, UFC 251, that'll be free for everybody. The live podcast, the watch along, all up at youtube.com slash postwrestling, as well as on this feed. All right. Uh, So there you go. That's it for us. Good night.